1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. And really excited about the show today. We're going to be talking with uh, Mick Dawson about uh, battling the oceans in a rowboat. Um, But before we talk to Mick, I want to say a big thank you to my guest last week, Stefan Beesonbach. It was absolutely brilliant talking to Stefan about attracting and retaining staff and, and discussing as well their incredible engagement survey tool called Engagement Multiplier which we, we really strongly endorsed our own clients. And if this is something you and your organisation are really interested in, just click on the engagement multiplier banner on the top of the show page to find out how to watch the video or access a free trial. Since we last spoke, I hosted a great event called Let's Get Engaged at the home of the UK's most successful basketball team, the Leicester Riders. I also had the opportunity to share a stage with Kevin Rowclidge who is the chairman of the Riders, who... He's been a guest on this show before, as well as Steve Middleton from Engagement Multiplier. Um, so, uh, you know, engagement is something that we really feel very, very passionately about as a business. And we've also this—I've um, just in the last few days run a, a group of um, with a group of MBA students at Nottingham University a pro- program on strategic change and consultancy. So, you know, a big welcome to anybody who's listening in from the Let's Get Engaged event, or is listening in from Nottingham Trent University. So let's go, move, go from engagement and strategy to the feats of my incredible guest today, Mick Dawson. On the 8th of May 2009, Mick Dawson and Chris Martin set off from Choshi in Japan to row 7,000 miles across the North Pacific to San Francisco. Crossing the North Pacific in an open rowing boat is one of the, the world's great firsts. And so after two failed attempts, Mick was just absolutely determined to make it. He went through storms, fatigue, equipment failure, intense hunger, lack of water, and they were just some of the challenges. He faced near death, and but eventually reached the iconic span of San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge after an absolute backbreaking voyage of over six months. Now, having personally spent a month travelling by road from New York to San Francisco and feeling elated when I got there to that bridge, I cannot imagine how Mick and Chris must have felt. He's a former Royal Marine Commando, a professional sailor, a motivational speaker, and a filmmaker. And he's recently written this um, book, Battling the Oceans in a Rowboat, or my version, which is a European title, was called Rowing the Pacific. And it absolutely gripped me. I think it's a book I'd recommend to anyone interested in adventure. It's a must for people's Christmas list for, for Thanksgiving. Um, along with my own book, of course, The Power to Get Things Done Whether You Feel Like It or Not, which feels very complementary to this challenge. So a huge welcome today to Mick Dawson, and we're going to talk about leadership strategy and courage But one of the most incredible adventures of modern times. So uh, welcome, Mick Dawson. You grew up not far from myself in Lincolnshire in the United Kingdom, uh, a place called Boston. And I wondered, what was your childhood like, and what was it that inspired you to join the Royal Marine Commandos?
2: Um, I'd basically, cause Boston, uh, like it's namesake in America is, 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 is a coastal town, much smaller version of the American version, but, um, uh, but it was all about the sea. Um, I used to walk to school in the mornings, go past the fishing fleets that were in the estuaries and I just, from, from the word go, all I've ever thought about was going to sea. And then as I got older, um, planning to join the Royal Navy, uh, as luck would have it, my brother, my elder brother joined the Marines, part of the Navy, but definitely a, a slightly different um, uh, direction. Uh, he would be joined just before I left school, and when I saw all the uh, all the paraphernalia that came with uh, joining the Royal Marine Commandos, I thought that looks a bit more exciting, um, which it was. So uh, I decided to join the Marines really at the last minute. Also. I'd, I'd, I'd have gone straight into the Navy proper otherwise. And were you were you inspired by was, was any of your your father or anybody like that in the in the in well, the Navy or the Marines or something before you? What, what, we very much had a connection with the Royal Navy. Um, I grew up with uh, my mum's brother, my uncle Peter, who was then a serving um, fleet chief in the Navy. And I remember as a kid going going to uh, to Hull, a, a, a major port just up the coast from us, um, to visit him on his ship, one of the last big cruisers. Um, so the magic of the Navy was always there. Even further back, I had two uh, what would have been great great uncles who were killed in the First World War on the same day both serving in the Navy. So the stories of the Navy and the fact that I was in a coastal town and we're very much a maritime na- uh, country, a, a maritime nation, I don't think I had any chance. I was always going to end up on the water.
1: I, I was When I was a young child, I used to have a friend whose father was a, a chief petty officer in the Navy, and he used to disappear off on sort of missions around the world, and it was all very secretive, and I, I, I thought it was all very exciting. And as a kid, I used to spend my time drawing maps and and reading about different countries so um, i never actually did it but it was something that really attracted me i think it was the idea of, of military combat that I probably didn't in the end <laughs> probably a wise, <laughs> a wise choice <laughs> so to, to tell us you know what what is a royal marine commando
2: well, basically it's the navy's um soldiers um, highly highly trained uh, it's a commando role so it's the amphibious warfare role got a lot of specialist um, aspects to the Marines, but it's um, very much the most difficult basic training uh, there is to do. Uh, and it certainly felt like that when I was 16 and <laughs> trying to get through it. Uh, nine months, solid training, uh, at the end of which, should you pass all the tests, you get presented with your Greenberry and become a, a Royal Marine Commando uh, proper. So, so this is
1: kind of equivalent to, you know, we talk about the SAS or the sort of Navy SEALs or, you know...
2: Um, it's, I, I guess you probably... Well, obviously it's equivalent to US Marines, which is very much a, a brother service. There's a big connection between the Marines and uh, and the Royal Marines. Um, but we're a lot smaller and more specialist, I think, so the, the, the jobs are a bit more specific. But, uh, yeah, I guess the Rangers, it's, it's that kind of standard in the States would be the equivalent. Um, special Forces, as such, that's really that element would be the SPS, Special Boat Service, um, which certainly in my day was just a, a, an arm of the of the Marines, but now is is basically an arm of all the services.
1: Uh, and and uh, uh, you know, t- tell us a little about the grueling training. You said you spent nine months uh, uh, training. Uh, some of it's clearly very very intense. But you know what? Um, you know what did you learn from that doing it? And uh, and uh, you know what do you think we can all learn from the Commandos when it comes to doing business and being out in this sort of civilian world?
2: I think most of the things I learned, I probably was naive of or unaware of at the time, mainly because I was so young and it was just, it became life. But the big lessons, looking back on it now, um, uh, it's all about teamwork. Um, Everything about the Marines is not about being incredibly fantastic individually. um, High standards individually and expected high standards, it's all about teamwork. And if you ever work anywhere within the Marines, you're always working with people who put the group first. Um, it's one of the key elements that came through in in my own adventures um, to follow. Um, I think it's a key element that should work into any environment in business that if you've got a team that always put each other first and um, that team will be more effective and it's it's almost like a self-perpetuating momentum that it starts because if you're surrounded by people who are putting you first, you then want to repay that by putting them first and it just makes a team stronger and that's it's not about being fantastic or Superman. It's about the state of mind where it's all about the group.
1: And Do you think, I'm often talking to people who've been in the military, and I've got one or two friends and people who've been on this show in the past, who what they've found is they, it's been quite a, a difficult transformation when they've come out of in the military life, when they've been in these amazing close teams, and then they find that actually outside people are a little bit more self-interested than
2: team interested. Was that your experiences? Absolutely. Um, it's one of the things that came out of writing the book when I was trying to analyze that question that everybody asked, why do you do it? Um, and I went rowing because I missed the environment of the Marines. I, I, I came out of the Marines and I can look back on it now and realize that I looked and thought, well, nobody's normal out here. And I honestly thought I was dealing with abnormal people. And then I realized, well, I've come from this incredibly um, high pressure environment where people behaved in a, you know, in society's terms, in an abnormal way. We, we were very different in the way we um, uh, related to each other. Um, and I, my big lesson was realizing that I wasn't normal. I couldn't be normal after having that life experience from a, a school kid at 16 to a 27, 28 year old coming back into c- civilian street. So it's not that it's bad or good, it's just you have to realise. Normal society doesn't operate along the lines um, of, uh, you know, elite fighting units. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, And I mean, how did that, being in a fighting unit in a team, battling teams, how did that prepare you for your
2: rowing adventures? again if you'd have asked me when it was starting i didn't think it was relevant at all but as i look back on it now it, it was the key element because it gave me the coping mechanisms and um, to deal with it you know the um uh, the ability to aid, put up with the discomfort and the, and the downsides and the setbacks it gave me all the planning um skills i needed when things went wrong which they sadly frequently did from time to time and um, quite dramatically um so yeah that it's there's a there's a line that the Royal Marines use now for recruiting, and they say it's a state of mind or an attitude of mind. And that sums it up perfectly. Uh, basically, it teaches you to have a certain attitude to problems and how to deal with them um, that make, make that situation much more manageable. Um, there's no question of uh, giving up. Um, it's all about keeping going, keeping momentum going and finding a way if, uh, if your avenue is blocked to deal with a problem. Uh,
1: I mean, have you got any... Do <clears throat> you know, sort of an example from your military days? have you know where you, know, you utilise that skill?
2: Uh, probably the best example, what, on the boat or when I was in the military? I think about it in the military, because we'll come to the example in a moment. Uh, yeah. Um, what do you, you sank? Well, probably the best example of where those things kicked in without me having to think about it was uh, when I was in the Falklands War. I was only 17, and we uh, went back as part of the task force to liberate the islands, And we were attacked. Uh, We were the first troop ship to be attacked on about day three, I think, of the landings. And the whole of that process, basically two uh, Skyhawks, A4 Skyhawks, came across our ship and dropped their bombs on us. The whole of that process, I can remember as vividly as if it was yesterday. Um, And I didn't have to think about any of my reactions. I reacted almost instinctively um, by virtue of what I've been trained to do uh, throughout the whole of that engagement um, from watching the bombs dropping down onto the boat to uh, the evacuation afterwards. Um, fortunately the bombs didn't go off. The planes were coming in so so low and so fast, they weren't fusing. Um, but the bombs hit us, and we obviously had to uh, abandon ship. And that whole period, really, um, it sounds like a cliche, but it was like autopilot. The things, the coping mechanisms had been put in place, um, and I wasn't overawed. Even at 17, I wasn't overawed uh, by the enormity of what had happened. And nor were the guys around me. And it was amazing to see how everybody worked um, efficiently as a team under that kind of pressure.
1: And did, uh, going through situations like that, and you know, I'm sure you probably other examples from your military career, I mean, you, you then decided to go and row the oceans and sometimes solo. Was, it, you know, was there any healing involved in doing that? What made you to decide to do it?
2: It was my inability to settle into the city street and um, I went into private yachting pretty much directly after I left the Marines and was horrified with how it was an environment I had little in common with in terms of the people. Going back to that, they, people just didn't seem normal around me, the, the level of trust, uh, commitment, uh, all those things. I, I come from an environment where people would step in front of the bullet here without even thinking about it. Um, an environment where people wouldn't give you five minutes if there wasn't something in it for them, and I hated it, and I needed to find something to replace that, and for me, fortunately, um, it, it became ocean rowing. Initially, I thought it was going to be climbing Everest, that was the first plan, and then I came across an advert for an ocean rowing race, uh, the second one ever run uh, from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, and I thought, well, I don't need to learn to to mountain climb to do that, I've got most of the skills, and um, I decided to along with my brother, also an ex-war Marine, um, take part in that race. And that was that was the start of it all, really. And, and that was very much part of me coping with the, rehabilitating into normal society.
1: That must have been an incredible experience roaming with your brother, because we don't often, or well, most people don't spend that amount of time with their
2: siblings, you know, alone. <laughs> <laughs> How <laughs> was that? Most people don't spend that amount of time with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um it's fantastic. Uh, it's very—I mean, I've done five different rows now up to date, and they're all fantastic individually. But to arrive in Barbados, this is right at the early stages of ocean rowing. Only dozens of people have done it at this stage. Um, to arrive at Barbados, um, and for our family, for my brother's kids, to see—you know—two brothers from the same family step off a boat that just rowed uh, what 70 days. I think it took us 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. Um, it, you know, it really doesn't get much better
1: than that. Amazing. Well, we're going to go to commercial break now. After the break, we're going to come back and we're going to start to talk about some of these adventures that you've had and, you know, a near-death experience that uh, you'll want to stay on the line and and listen to um, because it's an amazing story uh, and uh, stories of uh, triumph over adversity as well. So do come back with us again. We'll just be back with you again in just a couple of minutes.
0: Facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mick Dawson. And uh, we're talking about uh, Mick's experience of battling the oceans in a rowboat. And... Uh, just before the break, we had one or two little technical difficulties, so we've moved to a phone line. So hopefully, we'll be able to hear Mick much clearer, clearer in this uh, section. So, Mick, are you there?
2: I am. Hopefully, a little clearer too.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I can hear you really well now. So, excellent, um, Mick. Uh, before attempting the Pacific, you you've, you first rode the Atlantic, and with your brother, and we started to talk about that. I wonder. What did you learn from it? And then what on earth then made you decide to attempt the Pacific from Japan to San Francisco, which was 7,000 miles?
2: Um, The first thing I learned was from the minute I was involved with the project, it was like a light going on, Um, like I'd found what I'd been searching for. Um, And from the second we actually pushed off from Tenerife, out into the Atlantic, I knew absolutely this is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, and at that time, I'd, uh, we'd been following, this was back in um, 2001, we'd been following two serving Royal Marines who were trying to crack that North Pacific route, Tim Walford and Don May, Um And they were on the verge of doing it, really. They were down to about the last 12 or 1,300 miles, and they were hit by a fishing boat and sunk. And from the moment that that happened to them, I wish it hadn't, but um, from the moment it did happen to them, I said, right, this is a training run now. We're going to go and we're going to finish that off. We're going to be the, we're going to be the people who, the, the first people to row from Choshee to San Francisco. So uh, in a very short period of time, uh, everything I felt I needed in life all fell into, in, into place. A row in the Atlantic that got me started. And then B uh, the ultimate goal, which was rowing the North Pacific, which one of the last great first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amazing, isn't it, how we all have you know, different callings, and you know you, you know, you not only had the calling, you also, uh, I think it was your first uh, attempt, was it, when you had the near-death experience?
2: Uh, the so first, on the North Pacific? Yeah, North Pacific, yeah. The first, no, no, well, the first attempt on the North Pacific was, um, uh, that got about 13 days out, and uh, I'd been hit by about three storms, so oh. I was... Well, any time on the North Pacific, there's an element of near death on it. But um, <laughs> uh, I returned to Japan. And my rudder was torn off after the third storm, and I was not going to get to America, let alone San Francisco. So I went back to Japan. So um, the uh, second attempt uh, was was definitely the uh, the situation where I came closest to death, and that was basically when the boat was capsized, and um, again on the verge of the point where Tim and Dom were run over by a, by a fishing boat. Um, I was in a similar sort of area, the point where I thought I was going to be successful, thought I was going to get in last twelve or 1,300 miles, and I found myself trapped inside the boat, capsized and sinking on the North Pacific.
1: Uh, and you know, how did you get out of that? How did um, you again,
2: it, it, it goes back to that Royal Marines training. Throughout that whole episode, um, I came to lean on the skills that I'd learnt, didn't even realise I'd learnt some of them if I'm honest, but just things that are instinctively there to cope with the situation. Um, What had happened was I'd basically been in flat, calm conditions and I'd gone into the cabin actually to get my camera to film the rain and the rain was even flattening the sea down even more. It was like a mill pond. And while I was in the cabin, the boat was literally rolled over. It wasn't impact, it wasn't a ship hitting it, it wasn't a whale, um, but it was rolled by, by the water, like a wave movement. And I think, I still don't know, Uh, I think I probably uh, got close enough to a ship or a ship got close enough to me to roll me in its bow wave. But I had major problems with um, near collisions on that that particular trip in 2004. And I think finally I got unlucky. And um, as it rolled over, enough water came in through the hatch, which I'd closed but not not locked, um, that it stopped the self-righting. So as I rolled completely over and the boat, which was designed to come back up, um, that water inside the cabin stopped the moment, stopped the movement and uh, I found myself despite actively um, trying, to, trying to keep it going over like an active hamster in a, in a, in a, in a training wheel um, yeah the boat eventually went, t- ended up on its side with me trapped inside front hatch underwater, back hatch completely submerged, no way to get out uh, without flooding the cabin completely
1: So people sometimes have you know, dicey moments in, you know, in business where maybe you think they get some bad news or things don't go quite as anticipated and suddenly they're into crisis mode. You know, what at that point went through your thinking to enable you to, you know, sort of calmly manage that situation and, and find a way out of something that, you know, many people wouldn't have survived from?
2: No, no. Um, again, it was... It, I, I look back, there's a, obviously... um Life experience gives you some skills as you get older. But I look very much back on the uh, the way I was taught to deal with things in the Marines. And it was without even thinking about it, in that boat, I knew exactly what to do straight away. And that was assess the situation, make a new plan um, and stay positive. And it was as simple as that. You know, there's no point worrying about what's happened because worrying about it's not going to change it. Um, There's no point panicking or, or, you know, you're just going to spiral down into a worse situation. And without almost thinking, um, I'd assess the situation, realise I was in a a life-saving situation for me um, and uh, I needed to do the things to resolve that problem, forgot immediately about san francisco that was, that was gone I, I could i could tell that straight away the boat was crippled uh, i was in a survival situation i needed to get through it and i started making a plan to get through that situation and that plan was stay alive for four days somebody will get to you in four days if you can stay alive um and that really that that's what saved me because i by having virtue of assessed it correctly made a new plan and i stayed positive throughout um it, it, it kept me. It kept me uh, in the game and kept me in a position to, to keep myself alive. I
1: mean, it's very, you know, interesting that you, you know you talked earlier on about you know being in a team in the military and how you know how, how great that is. But suddenly you're in a situation where the team is you, uh, <clears throat> and and you know how, how do you, you know, how do you manage that when you're um, you you know used to being part of a group. How did you keep your morale and your spirits up?
2: Um, I, I relished the fact that I was on my own. Um, I would have gone, if my brother had two young children, else, he would have come on the North Pacific with me. It was just not not feasible to put his kids through that level of risk for six 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 and a half months at sea, potentially. It, it just wasn't, for, and I didn't think he could be replaced. That's why I went solo. Um, but I lost communications on day 12 of that voyage, and I went over at day 109. So I'd had four months. Wow with no communications. I occasionally spoke to ships that nearly run me down on the VHF, but no, no communications back home. And it was the best experience of my life because I found out more about myself in that scenario than I would ever do uh, anywhere else. You can imagine what it's like, but you can't actually recreate the reality of, right, you're on your own, completely on your own for four months. Um, So I relished it and I enjoyed it. I'm not suggesting that everybody would. And if I hadn't enjoyed it, I certainly wouldn't have gone back. I may have even, um, you know, aborted the the attempt. But I thrived on it because it was a way to find out what I was capable of. And um, and most of the answers I got, you know, there were proper... Questions of, of my personality and character, and most of the answers I got were were positive. Certainly in res- in, in respect to, to run across the North Pacific.
1: Mm, incredible, and and you know, how did you then deal with that disappointment? you have been one hundred and one days. Um, how, how did you how did you you know how did you do that? And then um, then go return for a third time. So it must have been getting quite costly by then as well.
2: Um, well, I was yeah, I was. I knew it was never going to be easy. That, there was a reason nobody had ever done it before. Um, and those 109 days had been spectacular on every level. And I then em- emphasized everything that's great about that route um, and everything that's difficult about it. Um, but I found something else ab- about myself when I was in the cabin. Because eventually I had to open that cabin hatch, flood it and get out. Um, which was no small feat um, I couldn't get out until that cabin was completely submerged and the boat was upside down so it was no small feat to, to go through that um, and before I did that, I filmed everything. I'd filmed everything about the voyage. It's an incredible voyage. Um, loads and loads of close encounters with uh, wildlife, whales. I was adopted by a pod of killer whales. So I'd filmed everything, especially because I wasn't talking to anyone. So it'd become really, really honest video. And the last thing I did before I went out of that cabin, before I opened that hatch, because I was enormously positive I was going to get through. I kept asking myself, are you going to die today? And I was. my answer was always, I was saying it out loud, nope. I am not going to die today. So I stayed positive all the way through. But when I come to the point where I was going to have to open that hatch, I did think, well, this may not go as well as you anticipate. And so I left a message because I didn't want anyone to think that I'd made a mistake, um, that I'd you know, regretted being there. And I left a message to my family and I obviously told them I loved them. And I said, if this goes wrong now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm well set up. But if this goes wrong, I want you all to know that I have no regrets Um, if I'd have been at home I'd have been hit by a bus if I go it's my time to go Um, that level of self-awareness you you can't buy that so when I look back on it after the eventual rescue when I opened that hatch and my world turned to chaos for a while but I survived um, I look back on it and remember my reaction and that was as honest a reaction as I I could have I realised that going back was well within my capability that even at that point where it may have cost my life. I had no regrets. That's what I was meant to be doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was, I was angry that I'd been stopped. So I thought there was still, a, still a, a point to be made, and, um, and I went back and did it. So, uh, um, I was
1: asking Mick to just move away a little bit from the phone because um, it's quite a bit of a sort of popping and things going on. It might, might ease it a little bit. Um, but tell us a bit. You mentioned there about your killer whales and orcas and that sort of thing. Um, I still can't get, having read the book, uh, out of my mind those unidentified and, and very intimidating sea creatures that you wrote about in the book uh tell us a little bit about that because th- that was really quite um quite remarkable yes
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they were far more than intimidated um yeah it, it's still something even to this day i've not had properly uh, explained or um or identified but yeah i was effectively rowing in flat calm about 1200 miles off japan and i uh, uh you you gather fish beneath the boat so you get like a micro system that's growing there a little ecosystem and they, those fish get big and from time to time the big predators come and they, and they feed on them and uh it was the day after my birthday actually it was june the 13th um, pitch black flat like a mill pond calm and all of a sudden i'm running along in the in the darkness all but for us, you know, the, 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 the glare of my navigation light around me, and these huge creatures came down the side of the boat, and I could see how long they were. They're were about just over two metres long, and they looked exactly like snakes or conger eels. I thought initially, and they smashed into all the fish underneath my um, underneath my boat, and they were absolutely ferocious. It was like a been <laughs> right on top of the the world's scariest floor show, watching these things just decimate all all the fish underneath the boat and i'd pulled the oars in to watch this and try and identify them Um, and i couldn't um I'd, i'd never seen anything like them before i never saw anything like them again um but when they finished when they had um eaten obviously killed meat and everything under my boat and i thought they'd gone um i then looked to my side and out of the water literally an oars length away out of the darkness looking at me was one of these creatures um, about 18 inches out of the water, staring directly at me, and all I could see was the reflection of the navigation light in his eyes—two red eyes and a, like a shine on the nose—and it looked like a, looked like a reptile. I thought it was um, a, a large sea turtle at first, but it wasn't. It was obviously these these animals because of the speed it was moving from side to side. And uh, then I looked to the other side, and there were two more, and these were all looking at me. They were all—you know—they weren't just in the water; they were interested in me, and they had just you know, killed everything around my boat. Um, And I now found myself sat on an open rowing deck, naked as it happened, because it was quite warm, to avoid chafe, um, with these three creatures and about half a dozen more swimming underneath around me, um, looking at me. And if I didn't think it could get any worse, one of them then hissed. Uh, I won't tell you exactly what I said, but uh, it was along the lines of your joking. Um, And it was, yeah, I mean, I've been right next to huge whales next to the boat and i've never been intimidated or frightened by i always excited but when these creatures came out of the water and were looking at me obviously interested um yeah i was more than intimidated it was it was genuinely frightening and to this day i've still not had an explanation exactly what what they were
1: i think we're going to go to a commercial break again and we'll be back with you again uh, in just a, a few minutes <laughs>
0: Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a
1: member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper here. I'm talking to Mick Dawson and uh, uh, Mick, we occasionally sound like you're in the middle of the North Pacific uh, with uh, the, the sound today, um, which makes it even more, even more realistic, really, when we're talking about uh, these experiences that you have. But we talked about those sea creatures before the break, and I couldn't help thinking about you know, these tales of mariners crossing the oceans and, and the tales of them coming across all sorts of sea creatures. And uh, I guess there's a lot out there, and there's a lot of sea in the North Pacific that's probably not been discovered.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's when I came back. I spoke to a number of people, um, marine biologists about exactly, well, lots of experiences, but particularly that one because I wanted an explanation for it. Um, and one of the guys said to me, Look, you've gone to a place where nobody goes on a boat that small, so close to the water, especially at night when everything feeds, um, going at that speed. You know, you're basically spectating, uh, on an area of the ocean that simply no one's ever. You know, people are passing through it, but they very, very rarely will be sat there analysing everything that happened. So he said, you may have just seen something that nobody's seen before I haven't seen for a long time. So um, I was glad when they went, but I'm, I'm glad to have had the experience. i take it as a privilege. And, um, and it kept me on my toes, because I can tell you now, it's the one thing that really frightened me. And I was um, genuinely worried about if, if they were, even on like, following trips, if, they'd, if they were going to come back and uh, have a look at me again.
1: Uh, well i see, they're going to get well, if they do get discovered they really ought to be called Dawson's monsters or
2: something that will um, do. do my uh, claim to fame
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we we sort of talked about the you know experiences on those um, first two attempts you know what did you learn about teamwork because you then went on to a row with chris martin and i just wondered you know during that that journey doing this a third time what were the most significant challenges and what did you learn about you know, teamwork uh, to being together on the boat rather than you being solo?
2: Yeah, the, the, yeah, the yeah. teamwork thing came really by, again, like most things that are important, almost by chance, because I ended up rowing the Atlantic again for a second time as a last-minute stand-in. I was actually working on the race because um, the race owners had allowed me to buy a boat, uh, buy a boat build a boat with them for, to go back to the North Pacific. And I was going to go back alone, but then I ended up um, rescuing a boat at the start of the Atlantic race in 2005, stepping in and then rowing the Atlantic a second time with one of the guys from the team. Um, and We were complete strangers at the beginning, and probably very, well not probably, we were very different characters. Um, that guy is Andrew Morris, uh, he's now one of my closest friends, um, great, great guy, but even he would admit that we were very different characters when we got on that boat. Um, yet we set off a week behind the, the fleet that had departed, and we came sixth, and we caught them up, um, at a fantastic trip across uh, the Atlantic Ocean in what was the worst weather for 100 years, so it's a lot more like the North Pacific than it was that generally calmer trade winds route. And when I got to Antigua, which is our destination in that, that year, I realised that, A, I was capable of working in a team with somebody who wasn't my brother and a former Royal Marine, um, um, being in a team would make it much more likely to get to San Francisco. Not get to America—that could be done. But getting a boat, navigate a boat from Choshi to directly beneath the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco—that would require, as we called it, keeping somebody at the coalface every available hour. So somebody rowing every hour you can on the North Pacific, and you can't do that as a solar. Um, you can do it as a double. Um, Unfortunately for Chris Martin, he came in on that same Atlantic race in 2005, a couple of days behind us, and I I grabbed hold of him because I I knew Chris, uh, I'd got to know him during the the build-up to the race, and I suspected he would be up for another project, Uh, and I'm glad to say he was, because if there's a single reason for my ultimate success in getting to the Golden Gate Bridge, it was because Chris Martin was on that boat, because I think in pretty much any major undertaking, it's all about the team. About the uh, uh, the level of success that you're gonna that you're gonna achieve, and it's all about the team. And it most certainly was on that row in 2009.
1: Yeah, that must make an incredible difference. That having somebody rowing all the time, but uh, yeah, that must have meant that you were doing, you know, not getting full nights sleep uh, ever really. How did you cope with that? Does he, does your body adjust?
2: You adapt. Yeah, the human body is, or the human being is, the most adaptable. Um, of tools really if you need to do something you'll find a way and it's not really your body your body will kick and scream and moan and try and find the easiest way Um, it's your mind Um, if you don't want to do it you won't do it but if you do want to do it um, you'll find a way and your body will adapt Um, it was an incredibly punishing regime two hours on two hours off around the clock for six and a half months there were gaps when the storms came or we got headed by adverse winds where we could catch up on some sleep but generally speaking we were rowing that routine for six and a half months and chris and i worked out when we got back in that in the whole of that six and a half months there may have been maximum 12 hours when we didn't row when we perhaps could have um you know coming out of a storm a bit later than we we should have or 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 getting ready for a storm a little bit sooner but that's six shifts in six and a half months when we didn't have somebody rowing when they could so that was like the level of dedication and um, and tenacity we had for for achieving our goal
1: wow it's uh that's incredible and you must have we I mean, must achieve an incredible level of fitness doing that that most people never experience i mean are you, are you still when you go to dry land are you do your body does does your arms want to row I know if I've done a lot of running in the past my legs are still you know wanting to run um and and it feels kind of more natural for them to be running than walking do you find that with rowing
2: um I'll be honest when I got when I got (laughs) off in San Francisco I didn't ever want to see a rowing back again I don't think Um, I kind of I I missed I, I was missing the Pacific almost before I got off it and you know that's despite we were desperate to get in but i realize that um, you know those sort of days I might not see again so I was kind of missing the Pacific I'm not sure I was missing the rowing too much um, the Atlantic crossings and even the solo Pacifics so I was I was in strong form when I got off and I could have gone back to the start and done it again I think but I think the emotional and mental um, toll on the on the North Pacific when I got off that I think I was about 18 months before I was physically recovered or not to be honest, it's, not for, it's mentally recovered. Um, you know, your body just follows on behind what your what your mind allows it to do. But uh, yeah, I I don't think I've experienced anything like that in my life before. But for eighteen months, I think I was. It took that long before I got back to what I'd call a a normal level of fitness.
1: Mm. You you um you know, you very sadly received the news that your your father had died during the journey, and you know I wonder how you kind of dealt with those emotions you know my father's ill at the moment and I you know I wouldn't want to be too far away and I just wonder you know how did you how did you deal with that and did uh, it help for example you not being solo on the boat doing that what must have been an incredibly hard time
2: yeah that's a really good question because I never ever thought about how I'd have cope with that if I'd have been solo um strangely one of the hardest things being typically british was the fact that somebody else was on the boat with me um because when the news came i was basically in the cabin and i'd something had been well, chris mentioned the fact that we hadn't any we hadn't had any texts from my brother because he used to send these small texts through little messages telling us about the english breakfast he was eating or the sunday lunches or the beer he's having down the pub just to keep our morale up as we were starving to death and uh, <laughs> alcohol free across the north pacific and he said your brother's not sent a message for a few days i've got this terrible feeling what like you do when you instinctively know something's not quite right and i downloaded the emails when i went off watch and the first email was um from my brother saying ring home urgently and i rang home urgently and it was about 10 to 11 i think at night in the uk it was breakfast time for us or just before breakfast on the boat and my brother answered he said i Thought it'd be you, bruv. Dad died 10 minutes ago. Oh. Um, and I can honestly say, and I'm sure there'll be people listening to this, know what this experience is. And it doesn't matter if you're in the North Pacific or or in a hospital, sat with a, the with a person. It's a devastating blow to lose somebody that close to you. Um, and from the second that that news hit, I went from being absolutely on top of everything I was doing to feeling like somebody had just stabbed me in the stomach and dropped a a lead weight across my shoulders i was destroyed and and my biggest concern was how am i going to tell chris because i was in the cabin he had no idea this was going on um i was in the cabin dealing with this and i spent the next two hours until i had to get out and relieve him practicing and worrying about how i was going to tell him what had happened without breaking down and I was embarrassed by my grief. I was worried that I would make a fool of myself by being upset when I told him. Ridiculous, I know, but typically British. Yeah. Um, but I knew right from the moment that it happened, I had to keep going. Um, I knew that's what my dad would want, what he'd expect, what he would have done if he was in that, that, that situation. And the same as my mum, she would have, the same mindset. And the first thing my brother said was, this is always going to be the worst day in her life, bro, but just get it done for him. Get home and, and get it done so there was never a, an element of should I keep going there was a huge element of could I um, tempered with this ridiculous embarrassment over my grief not wanting to appeal I guess weak in front of Chris um, eventually when I when 8 o'clock in the morning came out and relieve Chris uh, I practiced and practiced what I was going to say pushed open the hatch didn't look at him couldn't make eye contact just said Chris um, I'm going to be a bit that's exactly what I said. I'm going to be a bit messed up. Um, my dad's just just died. Let me row and I'll be all right. And uh, if there was a day on that boat when Chris was the best partner ever, it was that day. On many days, he was a brilliant partner anyway. But he immediately assessed it and knew I needed my space. Um, said, mate, I'm gutted for you. I'm so sorry. Whatever decision you want to make, tell me whatever you need, tell me. Um, and then he went into the cabin. Obviously, realised I I wanted to be alone, and and we cope from that point onwards. Really, but um, yeah, that's, it doesn't matter if you're in the North Pacific or where you are. It's it's as my brother said, it's always going to be the worst day in your life when you lose one of your parents.
1: It must have been very you know, emotional, really. You know, getting to San Francisco and then you know meeting up with your mum and the family. How was that when you you know it's been elation, but also you know quite a mixed feeling in some ways
2: yeah yeah that's exactly what it was is strangely we were well, you know from reading the book it was no guarantee even 36 hours before that we were going to make san francisco it was still looking impossible and we found ourselves rowing towards point reyes which was if we could get to that and close enough we were going to get in we had a 30 mile coastal run in and it, we would look like we'd make it but we were still being pushed too far south And for the only time in that whole voyage, and it wasn't forecast, the weather changed direction uh, to exactly what we needed. came right behind us and allowed us to effectively surf in in front of 25, 30 knot winds, two-point rayes. And I wouldn't suggest that Chris and I are that spiritual, but if there was a spiritual moment of somebody's helping us here, uh, it was that. Um, you know we all often said since about it, it it was as if the pacific had said you know what boys you've you've earned your right here and it just changed the wind direction to allow us that shot in because if it had been two hours later if it hadn't come we would never have got into san francisco um and i look back on that and think well if there's any if there's help from on high then um that was it that was that was the signal um but yeah it yeah, the one person who would have enjoyed that day more than anybody would have been my dad. He would have been the, the proudest man in uh, in America. So the fact that he didn't get to be there is one of life's great regrets. But you know, it's um, that's why it's important to make the most of the time you've got, and don't assume that you've got an endless uh, amount of time to to achieve what you want in life.
1: And maybe, maybe he was there in spirit. Um, I, I, I sort of. You know wondering now you know what what did you learn from all this adventure that you, know, you talk to business audiences, you talk to uh, you know various uh, different groups about your kind of experiences you know what did you learn from the adventure that you think is really helpful to others
2: there's an awful lot I've learned um, on many levels really personally, um, but in general terms of things that transfer it's I think it's very important that if you've got people. Uh, working in an environment as a team, that they've got to be passionate about what they do. And that's passion is one of these words. It's a bit airy-fairy. Something, oh, what does that mean? Oh, passion is a very straightforward word. If you're passionate about something, and we all are, we've all got it, you, you know, I guarantee everybody is passionate about something. Um, and you should be passionate about your work because it's such an important part of your life. Um, but passion, that's just another word for fuel. Because if you're passionate about something, that means you've got an inexhaustible supply of fuel to achieve that goal. That's what I had about ocean rowing and the North Pacific in particular. I was passionate about achieving that goal, so that gave me basically a bottomless pit, which seemed at times a bottomless pit of energy um, to achieve that goal. And that can be transferred into any work environment. That's what you need in your team, and that's about picking the right team, training the team correctly, giving them the support that they need to maintain that passion and give them the skills uh, to achieve the goals but passion is such such an important part of certainly everything i've done and if you see anybody in any walk of life you know the ones who are passionate about what they do it just shines through in the way they the way they approach it and the way they um uh, strive to to achieve the goals so if there's a single lesson um the best lesson for me was that finding out i was passionate about ocean rowing um, and uh and that on many occasions it was only that passion that got me through when things seemed insurmountable
1: very good and you can, you've got another venture coming up um tell us about that If buys a book,
2: um, i think on the last page it says something there'll never be another row so you might as well take that page out because um it <laughs> appears there is going to be another row now um yeah by pure chance again uh well there are no coincidences but uh I met up with a guy, oddly enough, he was a top recruit in my brother's troop in training when we both joined the Marines. And um, I met him, wow, 37 years ago for the first time, and he happened to wander into my local pub from the Blind Veterans Association down the road. He was blinded uh, during his service in the Marines. And we got to speak in and we decided that as no blind person had ever rode across the Pacific, he was a guy to do that. So in June of next year... Myself and Steve Sparks, former Royal Marine Steve Sparks, are going to row from Monterey in California in the Great Pacific race that finishes in Honolulu. And when we finish, Steve will be the first visually impaired person ever to row across the Pacific Ocean. So uh, I figured um, that's a good enough reason to come out of retirement. So anyone who has to rip that page out of the book, um, I hope you'll forgive me for that. I think this is a good reason to go back to the the rowing boats and the ocean... uh, and i have one more adventure.
1: Fantastic, mate! I've got to stop us there. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you today. I, I'm very inspired by uh, what you do and who you are and the things you've achieved. Absolutely love the book. Um, so I'd really recommend to anybody just go out and buy it. It's called "Battling the Oceans in a Rowboat." Uh, if you're uh, that's a US title. Um, or in europe it's entitled rowing the pacific uh, i reckon it's the best adventure book i've read in many a year and i'm recommending that everybody buys it as a, a christmas present by their adventurous friends so you can do that and mick you also speak a little bit as well so uh, have you got a website mick dawson
2: i do yeah mick uh, at uh, or www.189days.com 189days.com which is exactly how many days it took us to row across the north pacific
1: Fantastic, mate. Well, thank you very much. Uh, on next week's show, I have Carlin Pipes, who set set an incredible 332 US Masters Swimming national, six long distance and 53 relay records. Uh, she's an 18-time USMS All-Star, achieved by earning the most number one rankings in any age group in a year. She's an incredible swimmer with an incredible life story um, as she really suffered and struggled with um, alcohol uh, abuse uh, between the age of 15 and 31 and since then uh, she re-energized with swimming and has gone on to achieve incredible results so do listen to that she's based in, uh, in honolulu in hawaii so we link there with um with my guest today mick and his uh, incredible new adventure to uh, go across the uh, pacific uh, from monterey to honolulu so once again a huge thank you to mick thank you all for listening if you've enjoyed this do get in touch chris at ChrisCooper.co.uk. do share um, the links and details with your friends thank you